Welcome to YXC, a hyperlocal microcast with a second season. The trick is, if you make your first season really short, you get there real quick, or yeah. actually not so quick. Is this the time where we address the fact that we just kind of fell off the face of the earth for a while? I think people understand. Yeah, I think so too. And I think it's, we're letting the, we're letting the seasons guide us. We're not trying to control the seasons. It's time for season two. It, just, it feels like it. <laughs> we're ready. We're finally ready. Um, season one had how many episodes? Like four or five? Yeah. 4.5? Who's counting? Yeah. <laughs> Who knows how many episodes season two will have? Season two will run until such time as it stops. Quality, not quantity, as the adage goes. Yeah, and definitely not consistency. So I guess the beginning of season two is also an okay time uh, to reflect on season one of the podcast. And first, we just wanted to thank everyone who's listening. We just kind of realized that we should maybe speak to the audience even just a little bit. Um, So yeah, thanks for everyone and everyone, especially who's reviewed us on Apple Podcasts and not seeing a lot of one-star reviews. So thank you for that. We've got several i'd say several five-star reviews uh and if you are enjoying the podcast and have not yet reviewed us please do because i'm sure one day uh will be the most downloaded podcast in uh in, in Nutana? yeah in Nutana. In Nutana. i think we may be there we just cracked 500 listens last week did we actually yeah so 500 i don't know who you guys are but thanks yeah, thank you to all 500 of you. I don't want to exaggerate, but I think that that exceeds my wildest dreams. What's the inaugural season two episode going to be about? Well, it's a doozy, let me tell you. Uh, so listeners may recall one of our wonderful episodes from season one where we built a mystery. Today, we obliterate that myth. We do. It's myth obliteration season. And in the episode that we're talking about was episode unknown number, uh, but it was about the founding myth of Saskatoon. Yeah, um, who founded it? And I guess the, the myth that we busted was that it was sort of uncomplicatedly founded by John Lake. Yeah, by one one guy. And then the city just sort of developed from there. Uh, case closed. Yeah, our guest, yeah. Keith Carlson, in that episode, um, was helping us kind of explore the history of early Saskatoon, and we touched briefly on this idea that the Métis were kind of around and that they were in the city um, and about the city, but uh, we didn't really elaborate on this history at all, so we wanted to dig into that further, and um, we have a special guest today to help us do so. So, Sarah, what's the mystery? Well, I think the mystery is, um, I feel like we sort of, we took a look around with the help of Keith at, you know, different elements of the Indigenous history of the area around the time that Saskatoon was uh, coming up. Yeah, we we felt like we had more to learn about the, about the Métis presence. All kinds of mysteries. So I feel like our colonial blinders have been ripped off. We removed our colonial contact lenses. 
Now we can't see. <laughs> now we can't see. It's blurry. We need some help. We need we need anti-colonial glasses. We need decolonial glasses. I'm nodding. You can't tell, but I'm I'm nodding. I think the real mystery is uh, what's the correct analogy here? <laughs> A very general mystery, if I may, is just kind of uh, what's crackalacking around the prairies vis a vis the Metis. That's a it's a broad it's a broad mystery. It's very broad, very broad scope. This is a free form. This is a free form mystery for for listeners of our our past season. You will know that often our mysteries are very targeted, surgical mysteries, concise. With all that said, if you had to guess, what's the answer to all these questions? Maybe that's impossible this time. Yeah, let me think. If I had to guess, well, I mean, okay, so if we start from your, the broad mystery of what's crackalacking around the prairies, it's obviously an educated guess. We know uh, there are some Métis comings and goings. So uh, if I had to guess, no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same. Yeah. If I had to guess, I would guess that there's a huge, intricate, rich history that I have no idea about and that we're about to find out more about in our special guest interview. My name is Cheryl Truth, and I am a professor of history at the University of Saskatchewan. Um, I'm Métis from around Prince Albert and um, have been involved in uh, Métis research for probably 25 years or so. Um, I'm going to talk today about some of that work that I've done um, with the community here in Saskatoon. So you listen to our first episode about the founding of Saskatoon. Sarah, are you going to ask? So the way we have it written here in our outline is having listened to our episode on the founding of Saskatoon, are you mad? Are you spelled <laughs> R and U? Not mad, uh, not not mad per se, but you know, I think that there's competing narratives about um, that need to be understood about the founding of Saskatoon, um, particularly about the occupancy of the region and who um, who are the people that were here um, before Saskatoon became um, a city. And I think the narrative that has been uh, shared has not always. It's, it's never really included Métis people to any extent. And I think that's something that um, my research can help correct. So hopefully we can do that today. You know, we're fed a pretty particular narrative, I think, about, about Saskatoon, what it looked like when John Lake arrived, who was here, who wasn't here. So could you speak a little bit more to that? Absolutely. So um, what we know is that Métis people used um, this space, this area that Saskatoon um, now encompasses. They used this for generations before the city was was created, um, before Newtown was here or Riversdale or any of those places. We know that that uh, Métis families used it as early as the 1840s, 1850s as buffalo hunting territory. And so there's a community just south of Saskatoon called Brown Prairie um, out towards um, White Cap, Dakota First Nation. Um, and this was a site that was used as a wintering site for hunting buffalo um, we know for sure by the 1850s. And so there was there, a group of families that were hunting together that were, were using that site, but encompassing a much broader territory because they weren't just hunting like in their direct vicinity. So they were using this area that was, um, that becomes Saskatoon. Um, and we know this for a number of reasons. So um, thinking about, you know, the city and where we are located on the South Saskatchewan River, 
Batoche is just north of of Saskatoon. Round Prairie is south. And so we know that that these families were moving back and forth um, into that area. They were moving um, back and forth into like the Battleford region. Um, and so there's really no coincidence that, you know, these trails that move through the city that we know about, like the Old Bone Trail or the Moose Woods Trail, these are trails that Métis people used, and these go back, you know, generations. So there really was a significant presence here long before, a Métis presence here long before the city was created. So, you know, I don't, I don't think a lot of people are aware of these trails. Do you mind just giving a quick summary of the... Uh, sure. So, that was my exact question. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so, um, so initially there, they were, they were Red River cart trails. And so, um, and there's trails all across uh, Western Canada. And so these are the, these are the transportation routes that people would use to move goods, um, go back and forth to their hunting territories, all of these things. They were base, basically like the highways of, you know, generations past. And so these crisscrossed the entire Western part of the, uh, the Western Plains. Um, and the, the trails in particular that I'm talking about are trails that go, that follow the river, um, South Saskatchewan River to um, up towards Batasha, these South Branch communities. Um, there's also, so the Moose Woods Trail runs north and south along the river so that this is one trail that mo- that people are moving back and forth on quite regularly because the people that are at round prairie are very closely related to those of batosh so they're going back and forth um and they're moving goods back and forth and they're hauling um they're hunting in this region and then there's there's also a trail that goes kind of on the west side of the city um, what the city is now and it goes towards Battleford and it's called the Old Bone Trail. And this is a trail that that people were using. Um, it's a Red River cart trail. So people were moving it when using it when they were, um, you know, moving goods and, and hunting and all of those things. But it's also the one of the routes where people were when they were freighting goods that they were, you know, hauling buffalo bones um, back to Saskatoon to uh, sell them here in the 1890s. And so, um, you know, these, these, these trails are markers of Métis movement across the, across the, um, the prairies that, you know, they have a long history and people don't really recognize them. And they're, now they're part of the city and we don't, we don't recognize them anymore, but they're still here. So if we think about like the Moose Woods Batosh Trail, that basically goes down um, like Broadway Avenue in places, right? The old Bone Trail goes um, towards the west side of the city and out towards Battleford. So, um, you know, these are very much, I guess, markers of, of Métis presence here. And classic colonialists just like slapped some pavement on top and called it something different. Is exactly. Right? <laughs> something that I find really interesting coming out of what you're talking about is uh, the, uh, the idea or the discussion about the different Métis groups, because I think people tend to talk about Métis people as like kind of a monolith, right? Like, can you elaborate a little bit more about those? Absolutely. Um, okay, so the families that were at at Round Prairie and that are kind of the, seen as the um, the families that were in this this region, they were uh, basically families of Traches uh, and Laframboise. And so Métis buffalo hunters gathered together in extended kinship networks and hunted this way and lived in these these very large extended extended families. And so when they were hunting, it was an economic unit, but it was also a social unit. And so these were um, extended families where people were living together, hunting together, but they were very closely related. And so when we look at specific uh, hunting brigades, for instance, the Trache Brigade, which was 
the, fa the families that's, uh, that uh, came to Round Prairie, when we look at that, it's really a group of women that are the, the, the central feature of that family. So there's a group of three women that are uh, sisters, Laframbois sisters, that are married to individuals in that um, brigade. And so they're the core group of that. And they, they bring together all of these, these men um, that form this, this economic unit. Um, and then they have members of that, that extended family that are married into the families that settle at Batoche. They have relatives in the families that are at Willow Bunch. They have relatives with the families that are at up towards North Battleford, down into the United States. So wherever there's clusters of Métis families, there's, there's interrelation between them. Um, and so then there's very, a, a lot of successive intermarriage um, between these families. Um, and so really it is this very large network of people that comes together when resources allow for it. So when there's a lot of buffalo to hunt, people would come together um, in a large group to hunt when in the winter time uh, or when uh, the herds weren't in such large numbers, they would break apart into smaller groups. Just for sort of the purpose of visualization, because I think I have, I have kind of a deficit when it comes to thinking about like historical timeframes and even just like the number of people that we're talking about. Um, like when we think about families or brigades, like would a family, a lar a very large family, would it be like tens of people, um, you know, hundreds of people just by the way that those, those networks were defined right. at so the time? That's a good question. And, you know, there's no definitive number. For sure. But, um, say for instance, we know that the families that were around Prairie initially, there was um, in this brigade, we're very fortunate that there's a book called The Last Buffalo Hunter, and it's the reminiscence of uh, Buffalo Hunter Norbert Welsh, who was married into this community. And so he has left some documentation about his experience, and he, he at one point kind of lists the people that are that are hunting together. And so this is the foundation that um, that I used when I was kind of reconstructing who was all in this this considered this um, unit initially. A, in about 1850s, there's about 25 um, what we would consider families that are living together. Some of these are, you know, they're intergenerational, but there's kind of 25 core kind of families. So we're looking at, you know, upwards of 100 people. Um, but also there's like when, when uh, Métis people were gathering to hunt, you know, these could be very large hunts where there's hundreds of people together and moving as a, as a unit onto the plane so that they can hunt buffalo. Um, and then they would split off into smaller groups. So this is one of the ways in which they do that is they split off into this group at, at Round, Prairie, Round Prairie where there's about 25, 25 families. And that kind is kind of the number of families that kind of remains consistent for this group. Um, in other places, it's different. Other places, there's more families or fewer families. So you know, we, we're hearing about the process of um, movement on the plains by the Métis people, you know, settling in and around north and south of Saskatoon. What happens that bring the Métis into the city? Um, so, so there's actually a large part of the story that is um, really crucial to Métis and Saskatoon. So um, because there was such close connections um, between Round Prairie and Batoche, uh, so during the 1885 resistance, um, Gabriel Dumont is, is, of course, trying to get support from other Métis, and he looks to the people at Round Prairie 
um, to support what's happening at Batash. And because they're so closely related, this is part of that responsibility as kinship in their kinship relationships, right? To, to, to support their relatives. And so this is the reason that those from Round Prairie end up going to um, Batash and fighting in the Battle of Batash and the Battle of Tehran's Coulee or Fish Creek. Um, and so it's those relationships that, that Dumont is relying on. But what happens after, 80, after 1885 is that, of course, we know that Gabriel Dumont and others from Batash go to Montana to seek refuge. And so um, the same thing happens at Round Prairie is that the families um, leave their homes and they go to Montana seeking refuge with people that they're related to. So they go to places like Haver and Fort Benton where they have relatives. They, they, so they move into the state so that there's no kind of persecution or anything after, um, after 1885. And so they, they virtually just pick up and leave. Right. And um, you know, some of their, their, uh, their houses and their buildings are ransacked and burned and, but there's really nothing left for them. So, so they end up in the States um, and they're there until about 1900 and they come back uh, to Round Prairie because they can get scrip, which is um, scrip was given out in extinguishment of uh, Aboriginal title first in Manitoba after the creation of Manitoba in 1870, but then also given to, um, families to extinguish their title in the Northwest Territories. And so Métis people had never, uh, or Métis, the Métis Round Prairie didn't receive it um, after 1870. And so they come back to Saskatchewan, or what becomes Saskatchewan, they come back to Round Prairie um, 1902-ish, and they, in because they want to get scrip, and they also want to take up homestead because they know that that their land that they were on is going to be surveyed or has been surveyed and it's open um, for homesteaders. So what happens is they, they come back to Round Prairie and they start to, you know, they move on to the same, try to move on to the same land that they were on before in the same places and kind of pick up and rebuild that community. Um, and so they're, they're in those communities until, uh, you know, they're, they try to become farmers and uh, unfortunately they have very little success as farmers because the land is not, you know, they're on the riverbank and it's very sandy. And, and so it's just not, you know, not conducive to farming. And so a lot of people start looking for work um, where they can. So a lot of the, um, the men take work clearing fields for farmers that are close by. So picking rocks and, and roots and things like that. Um, Or, you know, cutting fence posts and things, you know, doing seasonal or day labor for, um, for settlers. And this is common amongst Métis people across the prairies at this point. Um, so a lot of people were engaging in this kind of, of day labor, or seasonal labor, um, because there was really no other options for them because, uh, because they often didn't own the land that they um, were living on. So they, and didn't have the means to become farmers. Um, at Round Prairie, it was a bit different because some of them, or most of them did own their land through homestead, um, but they still didn't have the economic means to be farmers. So, um, so they end up taking work as uh, when, wherever they can find it, and they start moving into the city um, because it's an economic center, right? So from the very first days of the city, Métis people are in the city. You know, they're still moving through this region, going back and forth, to you know communities in the south branch south branch communities of batosh and things like that but also towards battleford this is still kind of in their in their within their movement um a pattern of movement right very much a part of their social environment um and so by the 1910s 1920s we start to see that people are coming into the city um looking for work 
um, wherever they can. They're, and they're working for farmers that are closer and closer to the city. Um, and then in the 1930s, we start to see this pattern of movement into the city really intensify. And um, so what this tells me is this really kind of challenges that narrative that um, Indigenous peoples didn't move to the city until the 1960s. And they did move in the 60s, and it really uh, intensifies in the 1960s. But in Saskatoon in particular, we know that um, that there was a very significant Métis presence in the city um, as early as the 1930s. Also in Saskatoon, um, we know that the Dakota were in the city, um, you know, using the city for economic purposes at the same time um, because they weren't restricted. Their movement wasn't as restricted as um, other First Nations, right? So, so yep. there is a significant presence in the city. People weren't using it necessarily permanently, but they were coming in on a temporary basis using it for economic purposes um, at that time. And just to pick up on the Dakota connection, Cheryl, the, something that is interesting to me, of course, because of my work at Whitecap, but is the overlapping kinship connections with people from Whitecap. Yeah, so um, so there's lots of, it, it's really interesting because um, Brown Prairie is adjacent to Whitecap, and Whitecap First Nation, and so it's, it's an interesting relationship because for Métis people and Dakota people, like, you know, in the early 1800s, there was this really big rivalry, and then after the Battle of Grand Coteau in 1851, it kind of, you know, this was the period where they said that, you know, uh, the grievances between the, the Métis and the Sioux, they were, they were no longer there was no longer grievances. And so they worked out their differences. Right. And so then we see sporadically that, you know, Métis people are hunting with, with Dakota. And we know that white cap was hunting at Fort Ellis um, and in Turtle Mountain, often with some Métis people. Um, and so it's very possible that, that by the time white cap gets to Saskatchewan, it's very possible that he already had those connections with people from, from Round Prairie because they might've been hunting together or that they had connections with relatives to the people at Round Prairie. But what we do know is that when um, in the 1860s, when White Cap and his people come here, they very early, they start trading and they start um, interacting with uh, the Métis at, at Round Prairie and they, there's intermarriage that happens. And those relationships continue. Um, and we see that in the city when, um, in particular, when uh, after the movement of Round Prairie people into the city in the 1930s, we see that there's continual kind of ways that people maintain those relationships with their Dakota uh, relatives. So there's this really fun story of uh, when they would want to, some of the white cat folks would want to ride to town, they would climb one of the hills and take a mirror and signal to one of the shorts down the road and he'd show up in his big truck and take them all in like his like one ton or whatever in the back yeah. to town. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, so by the 30s, people were really moving into the city because they were looking for work. Um, and there's lots of there was lots of things that were going on too in their, um, you know, their land wasn't good for farming. Um, they were there was the process of turning the they were creating a PFRA pasture out there, um, you know, or or thinking about that, starting to do those kinds of things. And so when people were moving into the city, they moved in kind of this kind of trickle of people in that intensified over the years. And, um, but not everybody moved in. So there was still a community of people that still lived there, even though people were leaving and coming to Saskatoon. And so, but when they moved into the city, um, the families kind of separated. And so some moved on to the east side of the city and some moved on to the west side of the city. 
And so um, on the west side, people moved into places like Holiday Park or King George, where um, there was kind of more built up and there was kind of existing houses. So they just moved into some of those places um, if they could afford them. And then the people that lived on the east side, they, they were living in uh, at the outskirts of Nutana. Um, so very much on the margins of the city. So this was, a, this was a part of the city that wasn't developed. So people were living in tents. Um, until they could build homes. So this was very kind of temporary, but it allowed them to, they could work in the city or they could find what the, kind of work they could in the city, but they could also then have access to a more traditional lifestyle. They could still maintain some um, connection to to the land in a different way because they were still living in tents. And when you say outskirts of Nutana, can you give uh, a bit of a... Yeah, so, so this is um, south of Taylor, the city, um, in 1910, 1911, there's this boom that's going on, and um, the city starts to develop out, to, out that way, and there was this um, housing developer, this lumber company that, to me, sounds like it was kind of the way that housing developments work now, is that, you know, a developer will buy up land and start developing and then sell, build a couple houses on spec and try and sell them. And so this is, seems to be what's happening, is there's this lumber company that goes and develop, builds these houses. So we built these three houses that are called the, that people um, call the three sisters. Um, and they're the, in the 1900 block of York Avenue where the fire hall is. And there's still two of these houses left. And so, but huh. these houses are built in like 1910, 1911. Um, and that whole area is developed. There was foundations for buildings that were created. And the intent was that they were going to run sewer, city sewer and water services out there. Um, but then you know, everything goes bust in 1912, 1913. And so um, they never developed any further. But this is also right where adjacent to where Métis people are living. And so, you know, Métis people are on the outskirts of the city, and then the city is moving out, and they're starting this new development. Um, and they build these three houses, and then, you know, everything kind of falls apart. So there's three houses surrounded by some, you know, cement foundations um, for houses that never get built. And so people in the city are not interested in these houses because they're kind of in the middle of nowhere um, and there's no access to city water or anything. And so it's an opportunity for Métis people to live in these, uh, you know, these new houses, which I think is absolutely fabulous, right? So that they get to move into these, probably what were very, really quite fancy houses at the time. Um, but one of the families moves into one of this ho the houses, this Charlie Landry is the one that um, kind of that moves in and so this house becomes this center of activity for the fam uh, for for the community on the east side right because this is a big fancy place so this is the place where they go to have they go visit and they go and have uh, dances and they have celebrations and things like that so it kind of becomes this spot of community right huh. um, mm. yeah so it's kind of kind of neat but so but for the most part on the e on the east side people um, you know, they would build themselves little houses and uh, at the outskirts. And uh, then once, once they could, they would move in and, and rent little houses or, or things like that. But you can see that there was very much two distinct uh, places in the city where families were located in Nutana on the east side and then King George um, on the on the west side. So Holiday Park on the west side, which is really interesting that, you know, but they still tried to maintain those relationships. So they saw themselves as one community, even though they lived in different places. So we've got families on the east side of the river, we got families on the west side of the river, and we've still got families around Prairie. Um, for those that are in the city, it's easier. They're, you know, going back and forth across the the bridge, the Broadway, the Broadway bridge, so they can still visit, and they're still maintaining those connections when they can. 
Um, and then they're also still going out to Round Prairie and maintaining those relationships. Um, but they start to also use the Saskatoon exhibition or Pioneer Days or what it was used to be called. Um, so they use that as this kind of event in which they can gather. So uh, the families start camping regularly during the week of the exhibition um, where the Mac store is on Ruth Avenue in that area. And so they would go and camp for a week, even though they lived quite close to where that is. Um, but they would go and camp so that they could um, all be together and visit with their relatives. And people from Round Prairie would come in and camp there. People from the west side would camp there and, and from the east side. Hmm. Um, but this was also another way that they were maintaining those relationships with, with people from Dakota, from Dakota, from Whitecap, because um, Whitecap and you know, they were very involved in the exhibition as well. So there was this opportunity to not just have fun and go to the exhibition and do whatever, but also to maintain those relationships. So I love that thought of just, yeah, just people gathering at the exhibition. It's like, that's, uh, that's, yeah. that's that has persisted. Yeah. And, and then Brian Adams concert and had some fun nuts. <laughs> um, and you know, and there's, it's interesting because there's lots of, uh, lots of stories about people like, you know, picking berries and trying to sell a bucket of berries so they can get enough money to get ent entrance to the exhibition or to buy a hot dog or things like that. So they were mm -hmm. still doing those kinds of, they were practicing those kinds of activities, um, but then using them to uh, participate in the exhibition. So I love uh, hearing about these like Métis spaces within our city, you know, so like Mac store on the corner mm -hmm. of Lornan. Um, yeah. And the, York Avenue. I just, yeah. Well, and uh, what's interesting yeah. is um, York on at York Avenue there, where uh, three sisters are. Um, apparently, there was a community garden where Aiden Bowman is. Some of the elders in the in the community talk about that. You know, that was the place where all the families went and gardened together, and and probably because they didn't have access to a lot of a lot of tools um, or the machinery necessary. So this was a place where they could work collaboratively. So. And it was right there next to where they were living and probably no one else was around. So, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. So as families are moving into the city, they're, um, like I said, they're living in on different places, but they still saw themselves as one community. Um, and they start to get politically organized. And um, this is the same time that the Métis Society across Saskatchewan is organizing and they're organizing around land rights and around education and things like that. And so the, the Métis in Saskatoon, the Troches, the Landrys, by this time it includes the Vandales and other families, they start organizing as well. And it's really that they use um, the spaces like Charlie Landry's House of the Three Sisters. They use that as a space where they can get together and play cards and visit and things like that. And these things become kind of political meetings, right? Um, and so women in these are the ones that are responsible for, you know, organizing uh, socials or dances or uh, card games, things like that, that become the political meetings. So women have this kind of very important role in providing food and, you know, opening up their homes and their pantries to opportunities for people to politically organize. So the, the community builders, really. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Um, and so you see in the 1930s, there's this big push for the Saskatoon uh, community to organize as uh, the Saskatoon Métis Society as Local 11. And that's something that continues sporadically throughout from this time forward. And, and Local 11 still exists today. 
Um, so in the 30s, you see this kind of push to politically organize and under the leadership of, of these Trache, Landry men and Vandales and then, but women have this significant role in it. And then in the 1960s, um, you see the second kind of push for organization. And this time it was led by uh, Clarence Trache and other men in the community who start to um, again politically organized in concert with what's happening with the Métis society or what becomes um, the Métis nation of Saskatchewan, right? So, um, so there's a political movement or provincial movement to, to organize around Métis rights and Saskatoon is very much a part of, of that. I'm thinking, you know, about the diverse sort of interests that there may have been between, say, like a rural local versus a Saskatoon that's more urban-based. Is there, were there differences? Were there points of convergence? Could you? Absolutely. So, so there was some difference, but mostly, um, you know, in the early organization, people were really concerned around land rights um, because of what they saw as the failure of the script system. And so there was really a push for, um, for land and for education. Um, But by the 1960s, it's changing. By then in the 1960s, you see Again, this is when you start to see the real significant increase of Indigenous people in the cities, which, and there's a lot of political movement around Indigenous rights, and so there's all of these things that are happening. Um, and so, so the Métis community um, gets very politicized, and they start organizing. And by this time, this is the second generation of people um, that have lived in the city. And it's the, this is the leaders in the 1960s are the first generation of, of Métis people that have always lived in the cities that were born in the mm. city. Right. Um, so people uh, led by Clarence Trache, you know, they start to organize um, in the late sixties, they become really involved in the formation of the Saskatoon Indian and Métis Friendship Center. Um, mm. For a time they um, serve as the board of directors, all of these Métis folks. Um, they organize the native alcohol council they organize a number of services to help people in their adjustment to the city. So they're concerned with housing. They're concerned with um, alcoholism. They're concerned with education, employment, all of, you know, childcare, um, all of these things. So they organize the native alcohol council in part because um, they got involved part in part because their leader, Clarence really, really believed in it. He was an alcoholic himself and saw the value of, of having this kind of service for the community um, and so this still, the Native Alcohol Council still exists. It's um, now um, now called the Métis Addictions Council, Council of Saskatchewan, so MAXI. Um, they were in, they uh, were at the forefront of housing, so they created SAS Native Housing and were really involved in making sure people had, you know, safe um, and affordable houses. Um, they reinvigorated the local from the 1930s, so Local 11, and Local 11 really becomes this kind of powerhouse in the city where they're doing all of these things. So they're operating out of the Friendship Center, um, and they have a number of programs that they're working with the Friendship Center on creating. So um, they were doing a follow-up program for people that were coming out of out of jail. They were doing a court worker program to help people that were going through the system. Um, they were having job, helping people find jobs, helping them find houses, all of these things. So they were really developing these social um, programs for people. And what happens is women were recruited to do the organizing and um, because they're the ones that are going out and visiting with other women. And um, again, they're hosting socials and bingos and bake sales and whatever they can to, to raise money. Um, and so these, these opportunities become, women become politicized through this. 
Um, and so initially women are doing kind of this grassroots kind of organizing, but over time they become the ones that are running these programs. And so they become, you know, well-known and respected in the community as the ones that are, are um, able to provide services to people, right. Through these organizations. So wow. that's yeah. a, like, that's an impressive list of services. Uh, yeah. Developed. Uh, and yeah, the legacy is still around today. It's really amazing to think about. They were creating a network of, of organizations that could help, help people. And they were, um, you know, they were trying to politicize outside of their community as well. So they start working through local 11, um, but they also then start, um, they're really integrating themselves into what's happening provincially. And then also the women, um, some of the women that become over time become leaders of these organizations. Um, but they also, so the, some of the women that become um, really involved in this are Clarence uh, Trache's sisters and one of his nieces. And, uh, you know, so his niece, Nora, Nora Cummings, becomes very involved and, uh, you know, and can, it still is one of the leaders in the community, right? Um, but in the 1970s, she runs for city council. She's the first Indigenous, probably the first Indigenous person and the first Indigenous woman to do that. Um, um, she didn't win, but, you know, she wanted to give a voice to, uh, First Nations and Métis people in the city. You know, she was very much led the creation of, um, the Saskatchewan Native Women's Movement. So yeah, so Nora is this, like, Nora Cummings, she becomes this, um, you know, she's very politicized by her mother and her aunts and her uncle, uh, Clarence, but then she's also quite influenced by what's happening provincially, um, with the Métis movement at the time. So people like Jim Sinclair, who, um, is the, is the president in the 19, early 1970s, she's influenced by, um, by him and what's happening provincially. And she, like I said, she goes on to, um, she runs for city council, but she also becomes one of the founding members in the Saskatchewan Native Women's Movement. Hmm. Um, and so this is a movement for, you know, not just Métis women, it's for, um, it's for all Indigenous women, um, because their, their needs weren't being met by, by the provincial Métis organization or the, you know, the provincial um, First Nations organization, which was uh, FSI at the time, FSI at the time, right? And so they wanted, they wanted a stronger voice for women, because women had to have different issues, right? So they were really concerned with um, childcare, with with housing, with education for, you know, for women and children. Um, but then they're, they're also very, uh, very involved in challenging the provincial government around the Adopt Indian and Métis program in the 1960s. So around the removal of Métis kids from home, their homes, right? So, um, so they really have a, a significant voice in that. So, yeah. Thinking about it in this way, like thinking about it, thinking about kind of the history of the city through the lens of like the Métis presence in and around the city. For me, just hearing you talk, Cheryl, is like, it just makes Saskatoon feel so young uh, to me, like such a, such a young city to think about, you know, the people sort of living around, like in the in pre-Saskatoon space. And then so quickly within just like several generations, like you've basically just described up until, you know, 1980. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just so, it's so interesting. And it's not a, it's not a history that I, that I knew about before today. 
what's really interesting is that it's like these same families that are continuing, like that are still in the city that are yeah. still leading this community that are yeah. still, you know, that are still looking out for what's best for everyone in their, in their families and their community in their community. And it's, this is yeah. a generational thing. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. That's definitely what's really striking me is um, the lasting, uh, I don't know if legacy is the word, but there's just this, kind of tidal wave of Métis um, impacts, I guess, mm -hmm. on the city and in the area. And, and, and like you mentioned, like provincially and federally as well. And um, yeah, it's just so fascinating to me that Saskatoon is young and small and we hear so little about yeah. this. Um, well, and then mm -hmm. like when you do, you know, in today, when you hear about Métis people in the city, the first thing like people, the first organization that comes to mind is Comfy, mm -hmm. the Central Urban Métis Federation, um, because they provide so many services. But when you look at the leadership of Comfy, those are all Round Prairie people, right? So, and those are, they're women and they're yeah. from, you know, um, and like, like Nora, she, you know, still has, um, you know, still is a powerhouse behind Local 11. And so these are, these are still the same families that are still championing um, Métis community, right? So they're still doing the work and it's just happening in a different way, but the issues are still the same. Like they're still around, you know, what's best for families, what's best for community, education, housing, all of those things, right? Right. And that's, that's the foundation of this, this history is it's these women that were, that were keeping those family connections strong. They were the backbone of, they, they literally were the backbone of the community. Like they're the ones that, that were the, the connections between these, what seemed, you know, like as disparate families because of their last names. But when you look at it is, is this women were the core of that group and that continues throughout all of this movement. So um, you know, whether they're, you know, moving back and forth on the plains hunting buffalo or they're, you know, they, they move to Montana after 1885 and then they come back, you know, it's these connections between families that are really significant. And that's those women are the ones that are maintaining those. Right. So they're, um, you know, and then they move to the city, all of that work that women are doing to make sure that those connections are not lost. And then this, this push to organize politically and create social organizations and political organizations for the community and then that legacy how that carries on to the to the present day like it's it's really you know very much women that are the heart of that well i feel like that was like the most amazing summary uh yeah, it was <laughs> yeah my mind's blown by that do you have do you, like do anything else that you want people to know or any any final obliterations any final bombs you want to throw at these colonial yeah. myths myth myth bustings <laughs> yeah hmm anymore there's a couple other places that i think you know when we're talking about metis presence in the city I, I i really think we need to think about you know who we name things after and why mm -hmm. and if we look around the city there's lots of different markers of uh, metis identity that people walk by and see every day and they don't think about right so the gabriel dumont statue at friendship park you know that was created um or installed in in 1985 to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the 1885 resistance. And it was made to people, including people like Nora, that were leading the charge to get that done, right? So this was wow. a big part of, of commemorating their family's experiences um, in the city and also at Batoche. And But it was also part of a movement for these families to reconnect with their 
their relatives in Montana because at the same time, like this was happening in the city, there's this, what they called commemorate 85. They were going to Montana to reaffirm those relationships. So there's lots of these kinds of neat moments in time where, you know, they're kind of tying together some of those pieces. But anyway, so this idea that there's lots of, of places of Métis history, like we think about, you know, Gabriel Dumont Park, for instance, in this city, there's lots of streets that are named after, that are named after Métis people that aren't just Gabriel Dumont or Louis Riel. And I think, you know, there needs to be a better understanding of who some of these individuals are. And as you've just described, there's like so much of this history, just like so deeply integrated into, into our city and mm-hmm. its development and, and how it's grown and where it's gone. And, and but so now, that, yeah. now that we've mentioned it, now you'll look for it and you'll see it. Thank you so much, Cheryl, for, for your time and for, for sharing all of this with us. It's, yeah, it fills in so many, you know, we, we felt like our first myth, myth-busting John Lake episode did something to, to fill in a few gaps. And this has just really sort of exposed even more gaps and filled those in and really expanded our understanding of, of this history. So thank you. So we're back. There's so much depth to that kind of interview. I feel like I need to go back, give it a re-listen. Folks, give it a re-listen. You probably didn't get it all the first time. Yeah, yeah. Then we don't have to make a second episode anytime soon. Re-listen to this one. Have you considered? Mystery solved? Yeah, I would I would be comfortable deeming it solved. Once again, in the extremely limited context of our episode. We did ask, you know, what's crack lacking around the prairie? I think we got... Uh, quite a bit of insight into that I mean obviously we we got a good understanding of sort of the Métis history in the area uh just slightly before um settlement of Saskatoon we heard about Métis influencers the movers and the shakers yeah both historical and current yeah that was a like extremely illuminating for me I really my gap in knowledge in this area was just huge and now it's uh a little smaller. <laughs> lots more to lots more to learn and and to think about. Well, thanks, Cheryl. That's uh that was a, a lot of bang for our buck. No. <laughs> well, it was. Had we if we were to pay anyone, it would absolutely have been a lot of bang for our buck. And you? Mystery solved. Yeah. Uh I think mystery super solved. Oh!